Well, good morning again. Uh, I'm Robert Cunningham. As you heard earlier, I'm a pastor uh, in ministry to college students called Reform University Fellowship, or RUF, at the University of Virginia in Charlottesville. And I had the privilege of preaching here with you uh, just about two years ago when we lived in the ignorant bliss of a pre-COVID world. And it is a joy to actually get to come back and be with you again. Uh, my whole family is here with us. Uh, And we've enjoyed already being in the city for a little bit. And I have a special relationship with this church uh, because over the years we've sent many UVA students here to this city who have been engrafted into your life at this church. And so uh, at the outset, I just want to stand up here and say thank you for the way that you welcome people that my family loves and you invite them to share life with you here in this city and to stay rooted in faith in Jesus uh, as they navigate life in the world. And so thank you. It's a, it's a sweet privilege to be here and share that kind of partnership with you. This morning, we're going to look together at a remarkable text in the Gospel of John. It's in the digital order of worship you have. I hope you'll keep that in front of you. In the service, uh, it's John 13. And we're brought into this intimate setting, this final meal that Jesus has with his disciples before he is killed. And there's so much gravity in this moment. Jesus knows that his hour has come. We're told that. He knows he's about to die. And so you want to ask, like, if you knew you were about to die, the words you would say to your closest friends would have great import, would they not? And so we're invited to lean into this text. And and John has kind of paved the way for this. The first 12 chapters of John's gospel cover years of Jesus' life. And then the final seven cover just 24 hours. He slows way down that we might pay attention. And so I invite you to do that, to lean into this text as I read it to you, John 13, 1 through 17. Follow along as I read. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And during supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. And then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. And Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. And when he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. This is God's word. It's trustworthy, it's true, and it's given to us in love. 
So uh, this past year, I came across a video, as you can imagine, in college ministry. I come across a ton of videos that students think are funny and they share with me, and there were many iterations of this video. Uh, but it's a video that, that centers on this special bicycle that someone had reconfigured so that the wheels turn the opposite direction than they normally would. Uh, and the claim is that if you've grown up riding a bicycle, there is no way that you can ride more than 10 feet on this reconfigured bike without falling. It would take this whole process of like rewiring your brain and the way that you imagine and inhabit a bike to do so. And so there's a video where there's these like six world-renowned cyclists that come together and they attempt to ride this bike just 10 feet. And you get to watch this video. They each get three tries and none of them, none of these world-renowned cyclists can go just 10 feet. They can't do it. They've been so wired and formed to ride a bike the standard way that it's impossible. And it would take this long process of rewiring. And it's easy as you watch it to think, surely you can go 10 feet. Like, surely I could do that. Surely they'll get it. But no, they don't. And it's interesting, as I watched that video, I thought a lot about Jesus' disciples and what it's like for them to follow Jesus throughout all of the Gospels. Jesus is teaching them these things again and again and again about how his kingdom is different than the world. And you think, surely they get it. They've heard it again and again and again. And every time, they don't get it. They don't understand. And in a similar way, you and I, we are like them. We have all been so wired and formed to inhabit the world and to embrace the paradigms of the world for what is glorious and what is humiliating, for what is strong and what is weak, for what is greatness, or for what power is and what love is. And yet there is this whole other way of life of seeing and inhabiting the world that's actually different than the way of the world. It's actually different, and it's the way of abundant life at the heart of who God is and at the heart of the kingdom. And so much of the Gospels is Jesus inviting his followers into a whole other way of seeing and being in the world. And that's what we get in John 13. In many ways, this is one of the most emblematic places where Jesus is doing just that, where we get a glimpse of the kind of rewiring that God wants to do in each of us that we might more fully and truly live. Because really in this scene, that we get like an interpretive key. And unless you see this rightly, you will not understand the rest of what Jesus teaches or what he does in this gospel. And in this scene, it's like John is giving each one of us a set of lenses or some glasses and saying, do you want to see glory redefined? Do you want to see power reimagined? Do you want to see what love really is? Well, look through these lenses and see everything in a new way. And it all begins by looking at the posture of Jesus and recognizing that it's also the posture of the Christian in the world, okay? It's the posture of a servant. And so what I want to do briefly is just look at three things here. We see a picture of servanthood, the problem with it, and the path to it, okay? So first, the picture of servanthood. As we often say, a picture is worth a thousand words, right? And here we basically have a picture that summarizes Jesus' ministry, and that really summarizes the character of the kingdom and the very heart of God. But let me set the scene for you, okay? Jesus and his followers have gathered again in this intimate dining room. And during the meal, Jesus does something unthinkable. He gets up and washes the feet of each of his followers. Now, I imagine if you've been in a business dinner in the last few years, if the CEO or the person running the dinner actually took off their jacket and said, hey, before we dig into these appetizers, I just want to wash all your feet real quick. You'd probably be like, this is a little bit weird and scandalous. 
Well, even so, even in Jesus' day, it also was weird and scandalous in multiple levels. And I want you to see this, okay? Wrap your mind around what's going on here. First, it was scandalous culturally. I mean, imagine the disciples are reclining at table, and they're not sitting in chairs. They did this thing where they would lean on the table with their left hand like this. They'd be sitting on the ground. Their feet are behind them, not far from the table, and they would eat with their right hand. Not a lot of love for the lefties in the Greco-Roman world, but somehow they made it. And it's here that Jesus does this shocking and scandalous thing. He takes off his outer garment and he embodies the posture and the work of a servant or a slave in that day in the middle of a meal. And you see the practice of foot washing, it has this long history in the Jewish community. Most of it's seen in the Old Testament, but it was almost always performed by servants or slaves because in a world where people walked everywhere in sandals, their feet were very dirty. And you can imagine it would be like walking around New York City barefoot for a whole day and then somebody at the end of the day saying, let me wash those feet. That would be an act of true humility. And one commentator says it like this, most foot washing in the ancient world involved washing off not just dust and mud, but also the remains of human excrement, which was tipped out of houses into the streets and animal waste, which would be left on county roads and town streets. The task of foot washing was therefore normally assigned to slaves or servants of the lowest status, particularly females, so much so that foot washing was virtually synonymous with slavery. And what makes this account so extraordinary is that there is no parallel in any other ancient literature for a person of superior status voluntarily washing the feet of someone of inferior status. And Jesus' act represents this radical subversion of the social hierarchy and of the normal categories of honor and shame. It's not just an honored teacher performing a shameful act. It is the glorious God of the universe entering into the humiliation of being a servant. And all of this points to the greater shock, not just culturally but theologically, because Jesus is revealing the very character of who God is. And it's underscored by his understanding that, again, his hour, right, his hour of his death had come. He knows the sin of the world is about to fall on him like an atom bomb. And now when you or I have something big hanging over our head, like a big job interview, a big project deadline at work, uh, a big difficult conversation we know we have to have, that thing is all we can think about, right? It's just playing in our minds. What am I going to do? What am I going to say? How's it going to go? How am I going to come across? All we can think about is ourselves, but what do you see Jesus doing knowing his hour has come? At his hour, he is pouring himself out in love, serving these guys he knows are about to abandon and or betray him. He is comforting them to make sure that they are not afraid. And in all of that, he's showing us exactly who God is. In the next chapter of this gospel, Jesus says, if you have seen me, you've seen the Father. You look at Jesus in this text, that is God. When you see Jesus talking and feeling and acting, you're not just seeing the most obedient human ever, you're seeing the very character of the living God. And the God of the universe reveals himself as a servant, stooping down to intricately wash the filth off each of his friend's feet. And think about this, this probably took over half an hour. It would be this slow, embarrassing, maybe even awkward process, one by one. And they'd be thinking, why are you doing this? You're our leader. You're humiliating yourself. And Jesus is saying, I am your Lord, and I came not to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. 
Which is why in the Greek text of John, these words in John 13 and verse 4 of laying aside his outer garment. And then in verse 12 of taking up or putting them on again, they're the exact same verbs in John 10 when Jesus says he came to lay down his life and take it back up again. We're meant to see that all of this points to the larger picture that Jesus has come to wash his people clean, totally clean of all of their sin and their shame, their sorrow and their guilt. Servanthood is at the heart of his kingdom. And that's the picture of it. But there's also a problem. The problem with servanthood, because if we're honest, living into this picture is much easier said than done, right? I mean, we are essentially formed all the time to seek public glory and recognition. I mean, so often our acts of service can even be confined to things that we can post on social media, a little humble brag every now and then, or that look good on our resume or CV. And you see this passage exposes the posture uh, that we resist this posture of servanthood. It brings to the surface all these deep questions that animate our lives, like what if I'm not recognized and I don't get the credit for what I do? Or what if I'm not appreciated and seen and thanked and rewarded? Or what if, what if taking the low road of service actually hinders my ability to achieve and accomplish the things that I most want to get done? And we can have this deep fear of obscurity rooted in not being recognized or rewarded. Do you know this fear? I mean, let's take recognition. I mean, behind so much of what we do is a desire to be noticed when we do it. I mean, you know this impulse? I mean, I think all the time, you know, you do some things around your house for your family or your housemates. Maybe you clean the dishes or clean the bathroom. They get home and you're kind of just like, see the dishes? They're not there anymore. I don't know. Like, you just lean in because you want it. We all do this. Or maybe if you've been working on a project uh, with school or at work and you contributed in this very particular way, you get to the big meeting and you really don't hear anything because you're just listening, you're waiting until they say your name and say what you did and what you accomplished. Do you know the struggle? Or take the desire for reward. I mean, we, we want immediate reward or at least reward in this life that we can measure. I mean, it's why so many of our efforts at service can be so calculated. We have this inner accountant that's always doing the cost-benefit ratio. Is it really worth it to do this? Is there going to be a sufficient reward for that sacrifice? And yet part of what it means to serve as Jesus calls us to is to embrace that the cost-benefit ratio will not always make sense in this life. It will not always make sense in this life. Charles Spurgeon, this famous 19th century preacher, once told a story that kind of captures this struggle. Maybe you've heard it before. It goes like this. It's a story of a king and a farmer and a nobleman. And he says, once upon a time, there was a king who ruled over everything in a land. And one day there was a gardener who grew an enormous carrot. And he took it to the king and he said, my Lord, this is the greatest carrot I've ever grown or ever will grow. And therefore, as a token of my love for you, I want to give it to you as a gift. And the king was touched, and he discerned the man's heart. And so as the man turned to go, the king said, wait, wait, wait. You are clearly a good steward of the earth, and I want to give you a plot of land freely as a gift so that you can garden all of it. The gardener was amazed and delighted, and he went home rejoicing. But there was also a nobleman in the king's court that day who overheard all of it. And he said, oh, my, if that is what you get for a carrot, what if I give the king something even better? And the next day, the nobleman comes before the king, leading this handsome black stallion, and he bows to the king and says, My lord, I breed horses, and this is the greatest horse I have ever bred or ever will breed, and I want to present it to you as a token of my love for you. But the king discerned his heart, 
and said, thank you. And he took the horse and he simply dismissed the man. And the nobleman was very perplexed. And so the king said, let me explain. The gardener was giving me the carrot, but you were giving yourself the horse. You see, we often want immediate public recognition and reward, and often we will even in this calculated manner do acts of service to make it more about us than actually about the person that we are laying our life down for, sacrificing for, or serving. And Jesus invites us into this deeper place. And friends, it's a place of freedom that recognizes that self-giving service is at the heart of reality itself. That it's the way the kingdom actually works right now and that it is the pathway toward the deepest, most intimate communion with God imaginable. You see, Jesus wants our hearts. And he even reminds us to reward us again. He says, your father who sees in secret, he sees you and he will reward you in his time as you live before his face. And see, in many ways, we're just naming the contrast between the way of the world and the way of the cross. And all of it comes back to the cross again and again, recognizing that in the kingdom, we find our life by losing it. We truly receive as we freely give. The way up is down. The way to the crown is always through the cross. And Jesus has revealed that to us as he himself came to win through dying and to gain the world by losing his own life. But finally, I want us to consider the path of servanthood, which is really just another way of talking about application just for a minute here as we move toward the end. Um, There are a few things that I think each of us might need to hear this morning, a few invitations, okay? And the first is this. Some of us need to experience Jesus serving us. You see, the deepest problem revealed in this story is displayed in Peter in verse 6. He says, Lord, do you wash my feet And and he says, Lord, you shall never wash my feet. See, Peter is refusing to see God as a servant and even more refusing to see how desperately he needs to be washed by Jesus, which is why we get Jesus' strong reply in verse 8. He says, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me, no part in my kingdom. And this word for wash in the Greek, it's nipto, and in John it can have this double meaning. On the surface, it means washing their feet. But the deeper meaning is cleansing their sin. On the surface, it means washing dirty feet. And on the deeper meaning, it means cleaning and cleansing their dirty hearts. And so a question for each of us this morning, do you regularly come to terms with your neediness for Jesus? To be a Christian is to never outgrow your neediness. That's the paradoxical thing in Christian growth. It's actually to become more dependent on Jesus. And Jesus reiterated it time time and again. He said he came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Not those who think they are well, but those who know they need a physician. And here's the thing. You will never be ready to serve Jesus until you have been served by him as your Lord and Savior. And at the heart of the gospel is the claim that each one of us must be washed. We must be cleansed to the very core, and you can't clean yourself up. And to the degree that you think you can, you are resisting the grace of Jesus. And we can spend so much of our time trying to convince ourselves that we're not needy, or the world that we're not needy, trying to curate through social media uh, an image of ourselves that's competent, respectable, that has it all together, and we forget that our fundamental situation before God is of desperate need, that we can have no part in him until we let him into the darkest, dirtiest corners of our heart, 
our life and let him make us clean. And friends, he delights to clean up sinners. His blood can make the foulest clean. And we need to hear again and again that there is no darkness dark enough. There is no stain ingrained enough. There's no sin bad enough. There's no shame powerful enough to resist the cleansing blood of Jesus Christ. It's why the outcasts, the destitute, the prostitutes, and the sinners flocked to him in droves. Because when they were near him, they knew there is hope and there is life here. There is grace abounding in the person of Jesus Christ. You cannot out the grace of Jesus. You are never too much for him. We need to hear that again and again. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a favorite theologian of mine, says it well in his book, Life Together, commenting on this idea. He says, the pious community permits no one to be a sinner. And hence, everyone has to conceal their sins from themselves and the community because we're not allowed to be sinners. He says, many Christians would be unimaginably horrified if a real sinner were suddenly to turn up among the pious. And so we remain alone and trapped in our sin and lies and hypocrisy, for we are in fact real sinners. But the grace of the gospel, which is so hard for the pious to comprehend, confronts us with this truth. It says, you are a sinner, a great unholy sinner, and now come as the sinner you are to your God who loves you. You don't have to lie to yourself as though you're without sin. You're allowed to be a sinner because Jesus came for sinners. Amen. The second thing we might need to experience, though, is also this deep invitation to extend Jesus' service to the world and to one another. You see, in verses 14 to, 16, uh, 14 to 17, Jesus is getting at this, and he actually says we are to imitate him that he's given us this as an example that we do, and in doing it, we are blessed. And it's a rare instance of Jesus actually saying, do just like me. And friends, for the Christian, when we consider the deep questions that I often ask my UVA students, who am I becoming? When you ask yourself that, who am I becoming? One of the first images that ought to come into your mind as a Christian is that of a servant in all of life, from the mundane to the margins. And there's a mundane aspect to this that we need to hear. A few years ago, a writer named Emily Smith wrote a piece in the New York Times called, You'll Never Be Famous and That's Okay. It's a great title. And she was speaking about a fear of obscurity and the desire for glory. And she wrote this. She said, today's college students desperately want to change the world. But too many think that living a meaningful life requires doing something extraordinary and attention grabbing, like becoming an Instagram celebrity, starting a wildly successful company, or ending a humanitarian crisis. Having idealistic aspirations is, of course, very good. But thanks to social media, purpose and meaning have become conflated with, with glamour. Extraordinary lives look like the norm on the internet, and yet the idea that a meaningful life must be or appear remarkable is not only elitist, but it's also misguided. And she concludes in this way. She says, the most meaningful lives I have learned are often not the extraordinary ones. They're the ordinary ones lived with dignity. Meaning is not found in modern notions of success and glamour, but in the mundane. Now, I don't know much about Emily Smith, but the ideas she articulates map right on to John 13. And part of what it means to follow Jesus is to have notions of greatness and glory and success radically transfigured according to his. And if that's true, it adds a whole deeper layer of holiness and glory to the parts of your life that you often try to escape. I mean, so many uh, of us try to get out of these hard tasks like changing diapers, 
caring for a sick family member, roommate, or friend when you're already exhausted, listening to the struggles of a friend or coworker, doing the hidden things without keeping a tally in our heads as though we need to get through those to get on with the real thing. And Jesus is saying, this is the real thing. This is where life is found in this kind of sacrificial love for others. And we're also doing this in the mundane, but also to the margins. Because friends, we can often sentimentalize this passage. You know, we're like, what a touching gesture. Jesus washed the feet of his friends. And amid all of the loving words at this table, we forget that he washed the feet of Judas. Do you notice this? I mean, the same one who, who was moments away from betraying him. Jesus washed his feet. I mean, there's parts of us that wish, surely he should have waited till Judas left before he washed feet. But he didn't. And one of the things we're meant to see in that is so often we want to draw lines and boundaries of like, you know, these people aren't worth me serving them. And here in this text, Jesus is saying, no, 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 quit drawing those lines. Look at me. I washed the feet of the person who was moments away from betraying me. Life with me is found in serving the world, even your enemies when you are marginalized by them. Even there, we live in this posture. So let me conclude with this. Uh, and C.S. Lewis has this short book called The Great Divorce. Some of you are probably familiar with it. And it depicts the beauty of being a servant in a way that has been permanently etched in my mind. Uh, in this book, Lewis is the main character, and he's getting a tour of heaven. It's a fictional book, of course. And as he's getting this tour, he passes all these remarkable people, but there's this one scene that always sticks in my mind. On the tour, he notices this great procession coming toward him. And it's this woman uh, basically on a chariot, and she's surrounded by musicians playing the most glorious music he's ever heard, boys and girls dancing and laughing. And he's talking to his guide, and he's saying, whoa, 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 like, who is this coming? He said, is that, he's a, is that, is that, he's about to guess that it's someone famous. And his guide says, no, 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 not at all. He says, that is someone you'll have never heard of where you're from. Her name is Sarah Smith, and she lived at Golders Green. And Lewis said, well, she seems to be of particular importance. And the guide said, yeah, she was an elderly woman who was never married, and she had children in and out of her home her whole life and gave them a warm meal to eat and took care of them and fed them and always was hospitable to those who were around them. And Lewis is a little bit puzzled. And the guide says, oh, yes, she is truly one of the great ones. But you have heard that fame in this country and fame on earth are quite two different things. Do you see? It's a radically different world that Jesus calls us into. And we ask, how do we know it to be true? Well, we know it through Jesus, because in Jesus, the greatest is the one who became the lowest and showed us that that is exactly the way. Uh, so much of the kingdom is premised on what Paul reflected on Philippians 2 when he said, Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as something to be grasped, but he humbled himself. He took on human form. He became a servant, obedient even to the point of death, even death on a cross, and therefore, because he went to the lowest place, God exalted him and seated him at his right hand and gave him the name that is above every name. Friends, when we look at Jesus, we see the path that goes all the way to the cross is what ends in resurrection, life, and glory. The resurrection is the vindication that this is indeed the way. And Jesus says, come and live in this story and follow me on this path because it indeed is the way. Pray with me. Father in heaven, 
This passage is so beautiful and so rich, Lord, and it calls us, you call us by your spirit into a way of life. Lord, that we're often resistant to, but that we know is actually the path to abundant life. And so, Lord, I pray that each one of us now, as we sit here, Lord, as we have been brought into this place, that your Holy Spirit would be at work in us, calling to us, inviting us deeper down the way with you that is the way to life and hope. We pray this in your name. Amen.